Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening in. This is Skirt, a real horror show. Uh, and in this, our second episode, we're going to be talking about Henry James's seminal horror novella, The Turn of the Screw. And I brought in a couple of ringers, uh, a couple of my, uh, my uh, nerdiest book friends and my bookiest nerd friends and my friendiest book nerds, um, Becca Eaton and Kelly Fuller to chat with me about the book. Why don't we just jump right in? This is our conversation about The Turn of the Screw itself, as well as one of the better regarded adaptations of it, the 1961 film, The Innocence, which was directed by Jack Clayton. You may have even heard it's being adapted by the same team that made The Haunting of Hill House for Netflix a couple of years ago. And actually at the time when this podcast comes out, you should be able to watch the entirety of that uh, show on Netflix. Uh, 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 the Haunting of Bly Manor. But we haven't seen it yet. We just talk about the, the, the old book and the old movie. Because I myself am old and I, I talk about old things. Now here's me and Becca and Kelly. By the tree that weeps with me Singing always, always Till my lover returns to me Hello, Becca Eaton. Hey, how are you? Hi, Kelly Fuller. Hello. I thought who would be more fun to do a podcast about a book with than two people I know that already do podcasts about books. You have a podcast called CD Reads. Yes. We definitely um, put out episodes regularly. <laughs> you did one recently, didn't you? Yes. They, we recorded two. Yeah, they okay. haven't come out yet. touched yet. But right. they're there. They're going to happen. I wouldn't know anything about a backlog of uh, podcasts, Becca. <laughs> no. It's a little difficult to find the motivation to do anything these days. <laughs> and I'm not going to apologize for it. Hell no. That's just the world now. But they're going to be great episodes when they come out. Oh, yeah. So hopefully soon. I love both so, of those. Pray for my sanity. They'll come out eventually. <laughs> so CD Reads, uh, give a log line for what that show is for anyone listening that might want to check it out. Um. Well, uh, we... Kelly, just do our opening line. <laughs> We call we it. We definitely didn't forget. Yeah, I have to look it up almost every time we report a podcast because I forget what it is. Um, it's your beginner's guide to the wacky world of erotic romance. Um, we kind of stumbled into the genre by accident. Um, I think I just didn't want to spend money on a book before getting on a plane, and I found there was just a trove of it on Amazon, and so I just downloaded everything to my Kindle and just read filth for six hours to California. And um, got Becca really into it. And then we just found some of the weirdest shit. I was hoping shit. you look for titles. You were. Yeah. That's right. We, we started finding some, like, the cow girls. Mail order cow bride. Bears, cow, the cow bears mail order bride. I'm yes. like, how can and you I not was talk like, about that? You have to read it. I have to read yeah. it. We have to talk about it. The cow bear? Okay. Yes. I, I have so to he's like a cowboy that turns yes. into a bear. Yeah. We did okay. not know it's until we read. Yeah. You think he might be part cow, part bear, but it's that he's part cowboy, part bear. No, honestly, if you'd said, what do you think that is? I was thinking like, I know these genres. I know that one of the things you do is you kind of mine for these obscure uh, sub genres of sub genres of erotic literature. So it's like Bigfoot porn. And oh. I don't know if you've done that yet, yes. but there is that. I, I know about that. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> we're we still covered scarred. Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. We'll never recover. No. I don't know. Do you do like a, a summary of the plot? Do you walk, do yeah. you walk people through the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, we basically both take notes as we read it and then we just kind of go through the plot each commenting on various notes we took what the other one missed thoughts about the plot and then at the end we have some criteria that we like to go over like does it pass the Bechdel test? What do we think about the heroine um of the story? 
what are some good smutty euphemisms that we found. <laughs> also the like the appeal, especially with something about a man who shifts into a bear, like, why is that sexy? And we try to get there. We don't always. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stretch sometimes <laughs> for the imagination. Any favorite recent euphemisms uh, stand out to you? We haven't found as many as we thought we were going to. Um, we did get some heaving bosoms. Um, so, oh, you know, good. that's always good. But that's a classic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we had to go back to like this, the 80s to find it. So, yeah, there's really no euphemisms anymore. They just tell you exactly what's happening. Yeah, it's very cut and dry. <laughs> yeah. I, that makes sense. That makes sense. People are like, come on, get to it. Right. I, can, I can find this. I can find the video of this, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It is we competing with dance around video it. porn. So you don't have to read it. Well, uh, from uh, from porn to uh, to I guess we'll call this. I, I consider this almost like a more of a weird fiction story than a horror fiction story, because this is so agree. ambiguous and on the edge of what could be psychological and what's real. But we're going to be talking about Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, which is um Something I'd always in my mind, I'd always like thought of Taming of the Shrew for some reason at the same time <laughs> as this and never really thought about the fact that they have nothing to do with each other. I very often talking about the fact that I was reading this book kept trying not to say the Taming of the Shrew. Right. And it was hard. Well, there's, maybe there's a crossover potential there. But um, it was one of those that I thought I had read and then I realized I had not. But I think I've just seen so many references to it and uh, had heard so much about how influential this story was. It was an intriguing one for me uh, to, to to read because I'm this is like my my wheelhouse. This is my genre where it's literary fiction that has something wrong, something going on around the edges that that really I think we were saying this in a Facebook chat that like it really it's on the writer to evoke mood and atmosphere and kind of put you in the mental state of a character so that the the slight variation from the mundane really throws you off. And um, I think this story does a lot of that. Are you a fan of that genre? I think you said you were, Kelly. Um, yeah, I'm, um, I'm a little newer to horror. I'd actually read this in college. So um, there was a lot of me trying to punch out what my teacher said about it as I was reading. Um, but <laughs> I have actually over the past couple of years got a little more into horror. Um, it's I, I like a good cerebral, uh, unreliable narrator all that stuff and this book had it what about you becca i'm a fan also um and this book was reminding me of a lot of other things i don't know what other stories or books you have uh kind of scheduled out for this podcast but mm -hmm. this book made me think a lot about rebecca mm -hmm. it made me think a lot about just the tale of bluebeard's bride and mm -hmm. adaptations i've read of that um but yeah the psychological horror in movies and in books works way better for me than the straight up like stabby horror type thing well I mean, they're, they're different things and i when i think about what's actually scary to me it's it's more this it's more that walking in a room and the air feels wrong and the light feels different even from this era i love this like flowery writing yeah and i love that it's a sort of pre-cinema so it's like they, they actually have to try they're just trying to describe things that they don't they don't know that a mass audience has seen before it's there's no shared i mean maybe we have paintings and <laughs> illustrations but there's not a lot of like shared visual iconography to fall back on so writers had to sort of describe these effects uh like they had to invent the description of them you know i'm a big fan of um reading a book on a kindle and only two sentences take up a page <laughs> <laughs> so this really scratched that itch but yeah no the whole yeah. gothic era um yeah like rebecca jane Eyre to an extent um 
not gothic, but this did sort of remind me a little of the yellow wallpaper too. Ooh, that's a great one because it's definitely another one that deals with someone's uh, possibly declining mental state. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anybody thinks they can give a, a quick uh, synopsis of this. I don't think I can. No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, babysitting goes bad? <laughs> don't tell mom the babysitter's weird. That could be it. Um uh, creeping me out, maybe. Uh, but uh, well, yeah. Let's let's say a governess is is uh, she arrives at a house and she basically spends a really creepy summer in this house with these two sort of special children that are in the care of their distant rich uncle who really doesn't want anything to do with them. And it's all about how she sort of finds out a little bit of the family history and learns about the kids while being spooked by apparitions. Is that a good plot? synopsis yeah (laughs) that works and she's unnamed in the in the book right correct is she oh my god i didn't even notice that yeah Yeah. they they call her my dear a lot very rebecca yeah yeah it's very the second mrs dewalter (laughs) yeah well the way the story slowly unfurls with like no one really winter oh my god Oh, you said DeWalter? DeWinter. DeWinter. Cut that out, me getting that wrong. That's embarrassing. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll each get Don't one. Don't let anyone yeah. know. <laughs> but um, And the first edition of that book. Sorry. I'm so yeah. mad at myself. Well, that you know, that balances it out then. I'll get over it. Maybe. But yeah, so like it was pretty apparent to me that it's written in that time where you just think that people just talk in this weird stilted way so much so that the way they talk about these kids is like normal. But it feels very weird to me in the book right from the start that she's so like delighted and charmed and ensnared and all these different things by these kids who there's no real evidence of their being that different from an average kid. But I don't know if that was just my reading into it or if that's really what we were supposed to be seeing was that she was sort of like kind of weird, like she was weirdly smitten with the uncle and she's kind of weirdly smitten with these kids. It's like she's buying into she everything. She called them my children a lot, which was like instantly. Yeah. And just to talk about the uncle <clears throat> thing real quick, I don't know if it was just me, but I felt like that was a real red herring. I, I think I was reading way too much into it when he was like, don't contact me about anything. I don't want to hear about anything that happens in this house. So, And I, I didn't know anything about this story. I've never seen the movies before reading it. I knew nothing. So I was like, oh, shit. Like, he knows that something's weird here. He knows that something went wrong. And he wants to distance himself from it. Or maybe he's the cause of it. And that's when I started getting the Bluebeard's Bride type vibes. But then it was like, oh, no. He's just a selfish, rich asshole. And he just doesn't want to deal with these kids. Did that throw either of you off at all? Did you think that he was, like, in on it or aware of stuff from the beginning? No, not for me. Um, I just thought he was um, an attentive asshole from the start. But <laughs> I was mostly just uh, just taking in the fact that she was so smitten with him after one meeting. And I guess maybe it's just because my in- inherent um, nature is to be really distrustful of people right at the start. <laughs> and so I was like, why would she do that? And that struck me as like, I was like, is this sexist? This seems sexist. <laughs> I ask that question often when I'm reading um, female characters written by male authors that have these sort of hangups or whatever, mm-hmm. maybe like a shallow portrayal. Is that what you're getting at? That it's like a silly, a silly woman character sort yeah, of? Yeah, I couldn't tell, you know? They're at the beginning in the prologue when they're setting up the scene where they're at that party and they're exchanging ghost stories and they're like, oh, I've got this one. Get a load of this. And then the way that they talk about the wind in that scene, too, was kind of um, oh yeah unsavory. And so I think I forgot about that, that 
the just uh, I can't remember exactly what the descriptions of them were, but it was just about. I mean, they're very giggly. They were very like just very flighty and silly sounding. It reminds me of how like comedians talk about bachelorette parties. Yeah. Yeah, they there were, was just some some element of disdain to it, and then that they were woo girls it, for sure. Yeah, then that like bled into the first part of the story where she's meeting with the uncle, and I was like, oh, cool, a whole book about hating women, cool. But then like <laughs> as you you know as you moved on with her and as you were in Bly Manor with her, it it felt a lot more sympathetic to her as it went on. So I'm not sure if that was just me being really judgy right off the bat. There is sort of the hysterical woman trope mm-hmm. that I think could be seen as, particularly in gothic fiction, as something that, <clears throat> just like with a lot of horror, where you get women in as protagonists and it seems like a good thing, but then you realize that this portrayal is of someone who's who's crazy or someone who suffers, right. where you're like, well, I don't know that it's great that you made this protagonist a woman now that we've put her through all this. Yeah, and I mean, it could be both. It could have been that he set out to, you know, create a loving portrayal of a damaged woman, but then just kind of leaned on some stereotypes along the way because it was... About a hundred years ago, right? Well, yeah, even. and to think about like what what is the point of portraying those women in the beginning that way? But then I also really want to talk about what is the point of the beginning at all? And I don't know if I want to just talk about this at the end or talk about it now. But what is the point of this setup? We don't even go back to it. It's not a bookend. It's just like everyone's telling their scariest stories. Now this guy's going to he's like really setting up so hard that this is the scariest story ever, Mm -hmm. which in my opinion is just kind of setting you up for failure because it's really got to fucking knock your socks off if you're talking it up that much. And then it just it switches narrators because then he's reading from a manuscript and it never goes back. I'm just wondering what the benefit storytelling wise is of setting it up that way. The only thing I could think of was um, giving a little bit of credence to the um, POV of the governess because um, the guy who's setting it up, what's his name, Douglas, he, although I don't know how reliable he is as a source, um, he talks about her being just like the sweetest person he ever knew. And so he like believed her fervently. And so I guess that's a bit of like a character witness, but he was also in love with her. So there might be bias. So maybe there is no point. I don't know. (laughs) I think that like of this time, this is a, this is something they did a lot. I, I don't know what if they could they call it a nested narrative or, or some there's a term for it where you start off with someone saying and some some stories are ridiculous where you start off and someone saying, I'm going to tell you a story about a guy. And then that guy is in the story is like and then he found the manuscript and then sometimes it's three or four layers deep where the, the actual story is. And that feels like something they used to do. And this was a serialized story when it was first published. So I, I think in serialized stories, they did sometimes lay it on a little thick and then do another chapter and then do another chapter and then kind of get into the meat of the thing. But I also have heard that they used to use that nested narrative structure to sort of do what Kelly referred to, which is to like somehow if you're telling a story of the fantastic, that it becomes more believable to a to a, an average reader if you position it as, I don't know, I heard this story one time. I believe this person. But what do you think? Now, what's weird is that then uh, that you have the sort of false beginning of the uh, meeting around the campfire where he's saying, I want to tell you the scariest story ever. It seems like he could have told this story without waiting for the letter to arrive. Remember he had, yeah. like, I'm yeah, going to send off for this while. account. He built it up time. and he was like, oh, I don't have the paperwork on me. Yeah. yeah. 
But then, but then also when you get to the end of the story, the funny thing about there not being a bookend is I went back and I reread the beginning after finishing it. And I was like, I guess this is this ending of this story is horrific enough that it is a good ending to a story. But I feel like you could have gotten to it within like a, he could have done it in one night, you know, he didn't have to make people wait till Thursday or whatever, but maybe that's just showmanship. (laughs) They didn't have a lot. They didn't have Netflix. They had, they had to really stretch stuff out. Right. And yeah, not even not even having a bookend. I was also thinking, oh, maybe every chapter will go back to these folks at the cabin or whatever. And you just never visit them again. It is a bit of a tortured intro to a story that then might have not had some of these concerns as much anyway. If you had just jumped in with her meeting the kids and going to the thing, because I think a lot of you could you could chalk up to her being overwhelmed by this assignment. It is a very weird assignment. The fact that he's like, I don't want to hear anything about this. And you have to make all these decisions about these young children that you're just meeting for the first time and have no blood relation to. Mm -mm. It's a huge ask. I want to be quite truthful. I'm a bachelor, but not, I might add, a lonely one. I spend a great deal of time abroad. As for my London life, well, it amuses me, but it's not the sort of amusement that one could suitably share with children. In brief, Miss Giddens, I'm a very selfish fellow. and the last man alive to be saddled so suddenly and so awkwardly with two orphaned infants. <sighs> Most unfortunate. For I have no room for them, neither mentally nor emotionally. Does that seem quite heartless? Honest, but not heartless. Then the children do not live with you? No, they are at my country estate in Bly. A rather large, rather lonely place. Still, I'm sure you'll agree with me, the country seems the proper thing for children. For several years now, little Miles and Flora, charming names, don't you think, have had only me. Well, poor brats, they need more than a distant uncle. Well, of course, they need more than a governess. They need affection and love and someone to whom they can belong and who will belong to them. I feel that you are that person. Sir, you... You do realize that this would be my first position. What does that signify? If I trust you, if you trust me, the person whom I engage must solemnly promise to accept full and complete responsibility. She must never trouble me. Never, never. Neither complain, nor appeal, nor write. Simply take the whole thing over and leave me alone. Even without any of the potentially supernatural stuff that happens just dealing with like the first problem she comes across of miles's school like that's a big fucking problem for someone that's not his legal guardian to handle right well she gets there and she quickly finds out well the little girl is magical and delightful and oh so entrancing and if he's even more beautiful than her then i shall love them both but then we find out that miles the the flora is the little girl how old is she supposed to be eight seven something like that i don't know how old either of them were supposed to be I think he's I around was, 10. Um, In the book, they say around pretty, 10. I was going to say, I oh, think they, they were 8 and 10. And then along with the language they use, I was also a little confused. I was like, why do these tiny children keep calling her my dear? That seems so strange to me. They're talking like little tiny adults. But I guess it's normal. I don't know. Well, they are like being trained. Like he's he's pushing 
and, and in the movie too, the little actor, that kid did a great job with that. That kid was great. Yeah. That dialogue. He made that character real because I'm like, I can kind of picture, you know, those people who are like 18, 19, you meet them and, you know, they're sort of self-possessed weirdos and they're really smart and they know that they are like weird and off-putting, but they sort of barrel ahead anyway. Maybe there's three of those on this Zoom call. Yeah, I don't it's know. like, whatever do you mean? Maybe I'm projecting, <laughs> but I'm talking more, even more so than us, like the people who would have been sort of like theatrical and might have recited a poem and might have been like, you know, like a, 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 a that person who you're like, this person was encouraged, you know, this person was like allowed to grow and be smart and encouraged. And that little boy, like the way the actor plays him in the movie, The Innocence, um, it really did make that portrayal as written make sense. But in the book, you know, I'm thinking constantly like, wait, what's the twist here? Are they are the kids evil? Are the kids dead? <laughs> I had a lot of theories and none of them were right. Well, I mean, I guess there's no real there's no set in stone ending, but still none of the things I thought were true were even close to being true. But I was watching them for malevolence the whole time. So I think as I was reading it, I had the experience of of Miles, the, the boy seeming more malevolent because he does seem like whereas Flora's got this kind of innocent weirdness to her. Like she she says strange things, but she kind of plays it off like she's in, she's half in imagination because she's and a younger she, kid. She's definitely younger. Yeah. I know they said she was like sitting at a high chair when she was eating. So I was like, is she a toddler? How old is she? It's so ambiguous. But I also think they're kind of treated like they're, they're I don't know, they're, they're so pampered and cloistered off from or like take hidden away that you wonder if she's acting a little young because she has not been socialized around other kids. But he definitely seems like because he's gone off to school and come back, he's got this little bit of worldliness to him and like particularly when he like has his hands in his pockets uh henry james notes all these little mannerisms of like a, a gentleman and it does seem like maybe at that age in those times you would be sort of already being conditioned especially if you were going off to like a school like that where you're already being conditioned to sort of act like the the, the lord of the manor or something you know you're expected to have this status yeah and i feel like those things got more exponentially specific over time mm -hmm. where that is really what started to creep me out about him is how old he did act. Oh right. God, yeah. He was like 40 by the end of the book. Yeah, but then at the end, it really felt like she was talking to an adult, which is something she says a couple times in the narration. Mm -hmm. um, at first, he's definitely a little more precocious, but I feel like that stuff grows gradually. Yeah, like the conversation that they're having at the end of the book, I if I weren't aware of how old he was, I'd be like, oh, she's talking to an adult. <laughs> like she's yeah. talking to someone older than her. Like a peer. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's where that my dear thing kind of becomes like a, a deliberate choice. In the book, it was there to help preserve the fact that she was unnamed. Whereas in the movie, it feels more like an affectation because they give her the name with Mr. Gid Mrs. Giddens or something. Giddens, in, in the... yeah. So she's Miss Giddens in the in the in the movie, and I think the fact that the kids still call her my dear, or at least he does, it it seems more pointed. Whereas in the book, I started to think, oh, they're not naming her, and so it's just calling her my dear as a way around having the kids have have to say her name. Yeah. So how how spooked were you by uh, by this book? And and if you, I don't know if you want to point out a particular moment that that you thought was pretty well well written for that purpose. I was pretty creeped out by it. I, I and going into it, I didn't know it was a book that could have multiple interpretations. So I was definitely looking for one, and then eventually figured out that wasn't going to happen. Um, but I I think the creepiest things about it are the way the children start acting so much stranger over time, but they do, they seem so innocent and angelic at first. And then it just deteriorates. Then what it does, it's pretty shocking. Mm -hmm. um, Cause it's just so creepy. It feels like it's coming out of left field. And then when she starts to see the ghosts 
they're not doing anything. No, they're, they're just not staring. rushing at her. They're not knocking yeah. stuff over, setting the house on fire. They're just over somewhere and staring and not moving and not doing anything. Yeah. And that is so much creepier to me than if a ghost like came in here and started knock- knocking stuff off the shelves. Absolutely, because uh, you don't know what they're capable of. You don't know what they want. They're just there. Yeah. Um, for me, it was less scary um, so much as just kind of a long build of dread because you just kind of knew that this wasn't going to end well. Um, but mm-hmm. I think because of how immobile the ghosts were, they were just sinister figures from like across a lake or up in a tower or through a window or something that you kind of didn't expect anything too crazy to happen or at least I didn't the first time I read it and so then when the ending happens I was like what, mm-hmm. what the well fuck? I I was expecting them to start doing something over time and then they don't but then unnamed governess lady just starts to go nuts over time yeah which is interesting at some point I did think why doesn't she just leave <laughs> just get out of there <laughs> My favorite scene or scariest moment is when she's at the she's playing with Flora down by the water and uh it's the first appearance I think of Miss Jessel yes. across the across the lake and she's just looking at them and she sees her out of the corner of her eye and doesn't look at her and then watches Flora to see how Flora's acting and makes a big deal out of like I didn't look I didn't look and and then the chapter actually ends with her saying and then I turned my head to see what I knew I had to see or see what I knew was there. But it spent so much time and I know that feeling. All right, it's like I'm going to have to take the trash out at night or something and there's a shadowy, the, the automatic light doesn't come on and there's a shadowy spot where I'm like, did I see something in that shadow as I went by it? And I'm like, you know, if I don't look at it and confirm there's anything there, we're all good, right? That reminded me so much of a scene in House of Leaves where he's, it, it's pretty early on in the book and he's just kind of talking about this feeling of knowing something's there and he's describing it in a way that's making you think about it and picture it in that moment. And it's so horrifying because yeah, everyone's had that moment and it just house of leaves is great and insane, but it it just places you there in a really visceral way. That's so fucking scary. You know, it's there and you can't make it not be there, but maybe if you don't look at it, maybe it won't be there. Maybe if it doesn't see you notice it, it's content to wait. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that that is crucial to this. Like the payoff moments in this are these moments where she sees somebody who just shouldn't be there. And there is something incredibly creepy about somebody who just shouldn't be there. You know, you're out by yourself. You're out in the woods. You're out walking in an alley or whatever. And there's just a person standing there. And you're like, oh, they might have as much reason to be here as me, you know. Uh, But they also might not. And the way that they're standing there, just stare like that whole standing still and seeming to kind of stare. And, um, you know, I thought that that was... Again, like especially the one where she looks and he's looking in the window where uh, Peter Quint's face is outside the window. I mean, if I looked at my window right now and there was just somebody kind of peering in, that would be one of the creepiest things you could possibly see. Really wishing I'd pulled the curtains over here. <laughs> the scariest moment for me didn't involve the ghosts at all. And then again, I don't know if I was reading too much into it, but just the way that Miles acted when him and Flora plan out this thing where Flora's going to look out the window mm-hmm. and then the governess is going to look out the window and see Miles down there. And then when she confronts him about it, the way he acts about it was so fucking terrifying to me. And that's when I started to think like, oh, they're possessed, which is something she kind of alludes to, I think more in the movie than in the book. Right. But the way that he 
described the reason for doing that was so creepy and unsettling to me. He says something like, I just wanted you to know what I was capable of doing. Yeah, he said, like, I wanted you to know that I could be bad. Yeah. Yeah, I want you to know what I can do. I'm like, oh, my God, you're a child. Who says that? Well, now. Yes? I wanted you to think me bad for a change. For a change? Well, I thought I might be becoming a bore. Miles, tell me the truth. I am. I mean, good children do get a bit boring, don't they? So I thought, why not go out tonight and wander about in my bare feet? It was a shocking thing to do, wasn't it? Yes, very shocking. Well, that was our plan. Flora and I arranged it together. But we giggled so. I'm sure you must have heard us. Yes, I... I did hear something. I told her to go over to the window. Then you'd be bound to look out and see me. Flora's been bad as well. He has a couple flexes like that, because he has that one, and when he wants to go back to school, because he gets kicked out, um, and he, she, he basically, like, blackmails her into contacting the uncle. Um, mm-hmm. And he's so, and the way that he's so sweet about it, mm-hmm. every time he does this stuff, he's so sweet. He's not trying to be menacing. He's trying to be sweet. And he's just like, yeah, I just want you to know what I'm capable of. I'm like, that's so much scarier to me. This is one of the ways that the movie, The Innocence, was really faithful to some of his lines and some of his character turns. And there's a, a line he has in the movie that I'm trying to remember if it had an analog in the book where it's like, when she's getting her really concerned about what you just said about his motivation for this prank that he played, um, that then he's like, oh, I went outside in my bare feet. Isn't it just the wickedest thing? <laughs> yeah. And she's able to kind of go, well, maybe he is just a dumb kid. Like maybe he, <laughs> like that he really did think, isn't it just, aren't I just the naughtiest for doing this? You know, that hit to him, yeah. the absurdity of being outside in his night clothes and his bare feet should be apparent that that's the prank. And it's like, is that him playing her as like, almost like the, the possession of, if we're going to call it that of this character is like, is gone you know like he's back to himself and now he's acting like a little kid that would be like a tool that something really malevolent could use which the little girl does yeah eventually too yeah Mm -hmm. that i thought that the book was a lot more effective than the movie in that because in the movie it really felt like they were laying on the creepy kid thing immediately yeah Yeah. just immediately and in the book it's such a slow build-up where it does seem like they're laying it on so thick about how sweet and angelic and perfect these kids are. And it seems like to a weird degree, but then it pays off later when they start doing some weird shit to just see that turn. And then it's such a hard turn from the way that they were before. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it super effective. It's not like, oh, they were just a normal kid. And then they got mad at me because I tried to show them a ghost and they pretended there wasn't a ghost. It's just like, oh, no, the sweetest human being alive, the sweetest child that loves me so much now looks at me with like evil crazy eyes Mm -hmm. is so much more effective than if they were just creepy the whole time well i think the movie kind of decided where it was going it filled in some of the blanks that henry james purposefully left out which i mean i understand because visually that's got to be a lot harder because like the reader can use their imagination and pick the destination for themselves but i think they decided that the governess was crazy and that the kids were evil like at the same time yeah the thing that the, the book really does well is keep you on that edge and i think because it's not showing it to you you're able to believe that this kind of behavior would be charming possibly from a kid that you could be like totally beguiled by a kid who's that sweet 
But what the movie kind of shows you is that even if they are that sweet, a kid who's acting like that comes, it's very cloying and very bizarre. And you'd have to really be deciding you're going to be like, well, aren't you just the sweetest thing? You know, you'd have to relate to them in this weird kiddie way that is like, again, very appropriate maybe for a really young, precocious kid, but not the most not the most wonderful thing that the way that it's depicted through her eyes and again that might be part of her being kind of like overly smitten with everything and trying to convince herself along the way that could be her like just naivete yeah. um you know this is because isn't this her first job too right so maybe she doesn't know how kids are well and i think it's something they mention a little more in the movie than in the book unless i just was skimming over it or something was that her father is a parishioner or a pastor or something like that it's a real easy thing to tie together after seeing the movie. But I don't remember at the end of the book if I was thinking possession, literally. I was thinking more like these kids were being sort of uh, harassed beyond the grave by this this weird, malevolent person. And it was almost in that idea that you have in a lot of this type of story is that if a person is just so malevolent and so nasty that they it's like their energy could kind of hang around a place or they could have some some force of will that existed beyond their life just because they were that repulsive because Peter Quint really does seem like he's really repulsive. Whereas Miss Jessel almost has this, even though she's got this angel of death quality, she seems more tragic. And Yeah. She's dressed in black and crying and stuff. Yeah. One of those lonely, sad ghosts. The only thing that made me think possession when I was reading the book was the couple of times that she said how adult they seemed, especially when they started having their little spooky moments when she described Flora as becoming an old woman. Yes. And yes. I don't remember exactly the verbiage she used, but she said the same thing about Miles, basically, is that he's, he just seems so old and adult that I was thinking like, oh, shit, well, maybe these ghosts are just like taking over these kids' bodies, and that's why they have these adultish mannerisms and facial expressions. She says it to Miss Gross. Like, she says, uh, yeah, she says she's not a child. She said, someone her age, a girl her age wouldn't be able to use the boat like this or whatever. And then she says, she's not a young girl right now. She's an old, old woman. And when I read that the first time, I was like, what a strange thing to say about this kid. Especially because Miss Jessel is not an old, old woman. No. It's, we're, like, skipping a level there. Yeah, it doesn't quite add up, but it, like I think that you're right that that is like when it, that is an indication in the text of the possession thing that I had begun to wonder was that was that sort of extrapolated for the purpose of the movie. But it does make sense because he's he's presented as so like I mean he doesn't quite have the sneering quality that we were led to believe that Peter Quint had, but he does seem to be patterning himself after like we've said a, a man, a grown man in many ways. Uh the word that Henry James used often in the governess too is the word corruption or corrupted. Yeah. And she used it about Miles, like, what did he do to get kicked out of school? He must have done, like, corrupted the other children. And then the same with the ghosts and the children, that the ghosts were corrupting the children. She used that mm -hmm. a lot. And I think that was just kind of like a blanket term for what she didn't understand. That could be possession. It could have been... Um, well, because uh, the, um, the ghosts had a relationship beforehand. So it could be just corrupt in that it's even though they're not doing anything specifically to the children, the children were witness to something involving their relationship. And it's, so it's like a sexual thing. Um, I read up on, um, I mean, I did the Wikipedia research where you go to Wikipedia and then you follow a few links outside of that. So I, I did, did that and, immediately after reading the book. I was like, what is this? I dug <laughs> into this a little bit saying? because I'm really curious about what Peter Quint did and what he was up to and what he and Miss Jessel did. And they really I, allude to a lot. And... She says that he was too free with the boy. Much too free. Yeah. He's too free with everyone. And it's like that to me feels like 1898 
slang for something that would have read to, and I sort of confirmed this, but again, I didn't find anybody saying this is how people felt about it. But I feel like everything was so coded back then that that would read to an 1898 yeah. audience, like you said, oh, he molested them. Yeah, I read that same thing and I was like, well, that would make sense to me. But that makes the whole story make more I, sense. I didn't really understand because they're so vague about what the corruption from the ghosts would be. And they're so vague about what did Miles do to get kicked out of school. In my mind, I'm like, what what would adults do or say around a child that would like fully corrupt their spirit unless they're like summoning demons? Right. Mm -hmm. My brain thinks like it could only be something sexual and horrible or sexually violent. Yeah, exactly. It's so salacious that I can, I'm, I'm almost thankful that it, it wasn't written in a more explicit way because I think that was enough. Joseph E. Levine presents an Avco embassy picture. The Nightcomers. Now quit. There was a movie prequel made in 1971. Sounds to me like unsavory 1970s extreme cinema shit. You are forbidden in this house. Marlon Brando as Peter Quint who took two children and taught them everything. Why does Miss Jessel love you? Oh, does she now? Oh, yes, of course she does. Brando, brilliant. Evening Standard. I'll tell you exactly what we have been doing. <laughs> you slut. Now I put a few pins on her Brando, no one who treasures inventive film acting should miss it. Sunday Telegraph. Brando is superb. Sunday Express. Marlon Brando in The Nightcomers. So I'm just going to breeze through the uh, Wikipedia description of what happens in the Nightcomers, and I'm just going to warn you uh, uh, to buckle up because it's uh, it's a lot. Recently orphaned, Flora and Miles are abandoned by their new guardian and entrusted to the care of the housekeeper, uh, Miss Gross, governess, Miss Jessel, and Peter Quint, the former valet or valet, and now gardener. With only these three adults for company, the children live an isolated life in the sprawling country manor estate. The children are particularly fascinated by Peter Quint due to his eclectic knowledge and engaging stories and willingness to entertain them. With this captive audience, Quint doses out his strange philosophies on love and death. The governess, Miss Jessel, also falls under Peter's spell, and despite her repulsion, the two embark on a sadomasochistic love affair. Flora and Miles become fascinated with this relationship and help Quint and Jessel to escape the interference of a disapproving Miss Gross. Uh, the children begin spying on Quentin Jessel's violent trysts and mimic what they see, including bondage, culminating in Miles nearly pushing Flora off a building to her death. Miss Gross, deter Gross determines to write to the absent master of the house in order to get both Quint and Jessel sacked. The children are most distressed by this and decide to take matters into their own hands to prevent the separation, acting on Quint's assertions that love is hate and it is only in death that people can truly be united. The children murder Miss <laughs> Jessel by knocking Kelly's a hole face. in the boat she uses so to wait to for take Quint. In. Knowing that she cannot swim, Quint later finds Miss Jessel's rigid body in the water, but is given little time to mourn before Miles kills him with a bow and arrow. The film <laughs> ends with the arrival of a new governess, presumably the one who features in The Turn of the Screw. So, 
Wow. In- interesting. Yeah, no, you were spot on with that uh, description. I was like, wow, that's like easy writer meets Jane Eyre. I don't know. <laughs> that's like that kind of transgressive, like toxic masculinity shit that was like, you know, we were, some of that stuff, some of those movies were well made. But sure. So, so many of them were just like Marlon Brando being like, uh, can I tie somebody up and, and you know. Hit him around whatever. a couple yeah. times. <laughs> But also just the idea that that feels to me like, okay, this is proof that people should stop blaming, like, this is something they invented in the in the 21st century, this idea of doing un- unnecessary prequels to things and mm. reboots that, that are, like, tone deaf. Um, but that, that seems to confirm all of the stuff that we were just saying is kind of hinted at in a way that, again, I'm glad this story doesn't deal with it that salaciously. Well, yeah, because that that also just solves the ending of this book which i think was supposed to be ambiguous intentionally right right. it just tells you oh well this is exactly what happened which is something that i really don't like about prequels is that they just end up answering too many questions and questions that often that you weren't asking yeah yeah i'm almost never interested in the like how a villain becomes a villain it's never interesting yeah I think they think it is, but it never is. Right. And all it does is ever soften them. So then they're not really that much of a villain anymore. And sometimes you just want a bad guy. I mean, I like, I don't know. I like an antihero or, you know, the gray area. But sometimes you just need a bad guy. Yeah, like I enjoy thinking about Peter Quint as this depraved individual who who corrupted people around him. but, But seeing it dramatized sounds pretty tawdry to me. Um, I, I really like just the little implications we get of, of, of what was wrong with him through, through the things that we hear about him. When the master left, Quint was alone with us in charge. Tell me, how did he die? Quint? Out there, miss, on those very steps. It was winter. The coldest, blackest winter's night. The steps were icy. And Quint, he came home late after we were all abed. Late and full of drink. There was a wound on his head as if he'd slipped, as if he'd fallen out there in the dark. Can't forget his eyes. They were open, filled with surprise, with pain, like the eyes of a fox I once saw, a fox the dogs had hunted down. But it was an accident. (laughs) He was a peculiar man. There were things in his life that could account for violence done him, vicious things, it doesn't do to speak ill of the dead. Children never mention him. Oh, no, miss. And neither must you. Not to them. You see, miss, it was Master Miles that found him. Oh, that poor little boy. If you could have heard his screams, seen the way he clung to him and begged him to speak, that poor little boy worshipped Quint. Worshipped him? That man, Miles? You didn't know Quint, miss. Such power he had over people. You can't blame the child. A lonely boy with no father, Quint took advantage, that's all. It made me sick to see Miles trotting after him like a little dog. They were always together. The way Miss Gross, who we haven't really talked about, but the way that she reacts is very telling. And it's like, I buy, I believe her. Whereas whereas the narrator is like uh, sketchy. Uh, Miss Gross is like solid as a rock. I love oh, Miss yeah. Gross. She was great. I, I liked um, the exchanges that Miss Gross and the governess would have where the governess was like, oh, Miss Gross agrees with me. But if you're actually reading what she's saying, I don't think she agrees with her at any point. She's right. just agreeable <laughs> and like yeah. also has the children's interest in mind and lo- knows like with regards to like social status and station that she's 
below the governess and has to do what she says and mm-hmm. has to be agreeable. But yeah, I don't they think mentioned she that a few times. Yeah. 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 Where she's she definitely knows her station and she's she doesn't want to contradict the governess, but she doesn't want to just be like, yeah, ghosts are real. This right. is reality now. She's trying to like maintain a sense of reality and not be like a thorn in the side of the governess too and mm-hmm. still run the household. It's a lot. Yeah. It's possible that she does like value her friendship on some level or try to like, there's possible that there's some like Miss Gross is like, there's some sincerity there and the, but it's like, she's almost like, caring for the governess in a way like she because oh, yeah. when the governess and again in the movie it, it's 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 right there in front of you that the governess is kind of flipping out in the book it's not always apparent how she's coming off to miss gross but i i do think that when you get to the end you can believe that every time she took her aside for these great scenes honestly i would love those scenes in fact henry james almost has this pattern of like the governess sees something and we don't fully get her reaction to it. And then the next scene is her going to the, the Miss Gross and being like, you won't believe what just happened. Um, and yeah. like, I loved those conversations, which is funny that when I was reading through it, I found their conversations very circuitous and sort of unfulfilling on purpose, like not revealing information. But in retrospect, I went back to try to reread those. And I was like, oh, actually, these conversations read much more as Miss Gross, like trying to get her shit done. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Maybe she believed her until she saw her say, look, there's someone standing there and there wasn't someone there. Like, that's the moment where I feel like Miss Gross definitely is like, oh, she's crazy. Because I do think in the book, I came away thinking Miss Gross is superstitious. Like, she's she does believe. I, do, I think she meant that when she said, I do believe. Sure. But I don't think she meant necessarily, I believe you, you know, and then I believe everything you've seen. And yeah, I think there were a lot of allusions in the book to Mrs. Gross trying to not deal with the problem, like recognizing that there was some weird shit that went down in this house and really wanting to move far past it. So the governess bringing all this stuff up again and then starting to talk about supernatural type things. She's just like, whoa, I don't want to deal with this kind of thing. There are a lot of times where she was definitely trying to leave the conversation and the governess was just like, nope, I'm not going to let, I didn't let her go that easy. I kept digging into her to get this information. I'm like, oh my God, that poor woman. Just let her go back to her job. That's almost like Miss Gross's flaw is that she didn't shut down whatever happened in the past, that she didn't step in or something. Like there is some shame on her side. But other than that, she's definitely just trying to full steam ahead, you know? I think people were pretty into like the idea of the supernatural and ghosts in that time period. So it would kind of make sense for her to go along with it and agree with it at first, especially if it wasn't hurting anyone. Like it mm-hmm. just, you know, initially it's just like, oh, this woman's a little eccentric, but I mean, she loves the kids. The kids are happy. Everything's fine. And then as the governor's just gets more increasingly hysterical, that's when Miss Gross is like, all right, uh, I don't see anything. <laughs> Yeah, It's funny to think about that now, though. Like, me and Kelly don't have kids. John, you do. Mm-hmm. If you had a babysitter when your kid was eight, and the babysitter was like, there's a ghost outside the window. He was staring at me. He had red hair. What I'll are you going to do about this ghost? Handsome? What would you do? Very, very handsome. <laughs> yes, super uh. handsome and charismatic. <laughs> like, <laughs> how would a modern day person react to that? I think you'd be like, I'm going to find a new babysitter. I think you would. I think you would be polite. I'm going to find a new baby. And I hope that you get the help you need. I think you would be polite. I think you would be like, oh, man, geez, God, I'll keep my eye out for that ghost. <laughs> and then you would just not call them back. You're right. Because I don't think I would say, Psst. 
you're full of shit because I don't know what I would yeah. think. I would be like, you've 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 creeped me out. Yeah, you probably wouldn't instantly be like, oh, you're right. I bet yeah. there is a ghost because yeah. you said so, and you're a total stranger. But I believe you. But if it was like she had just moved in and we were out in the country and there was no one else for miles around, I would be like, oh man, you're the person. Like, you're <laughs> yeah. the person I have to to bunk up with this summer. You know, this is going to be the longest summer ever. That's true. It's not like they had Craigslist to find a new babysitter. Someone around. should do Miss Gross's journal, like a story that's like her account. That would be amazing. A crazy came up to me again. <laughs> for one thing, I think she's in love with Miles. That's kind of weird. Yes. That was so much weirder in the movie. Yeah. It really was. All and again, the I think kissing the, on the mouth. Too much kissing. Well, let's do this. Is there anything else to say about the book that we can't say as we move on to go a little bit more into uh, the movie from 1961, The Innocents? Oh, if we want to circle back to Peter Quint real quick, it's yeah. possible he. There was nothing nefarious about him. There was one part where um, he, one of the instances where the governess saw him and she mentioned his familiarity because he wasn't wearing a hat. That yeah. could be too free. What the fuck do we know? Right, right. Were these words more loaded because it was the past or not loaded at all because it was the past? I think a lot of times things sound like innuendo to a modern ear that a, an old person would say, oh, no, that's just that's just a figure of speech. That was a big problem with me in general with this book was the type of language in it and I I don't think I've read a lot of books around this era um, and I definitely struggled through it where yeah. I would just be rereading the same sentence over and over and I'm like I don't even know what this fucking means I just I definitely <laughs> struggle with the language a little bit and yeah things like word meanings and phrasings and then also just like the expectations of people in society those days, I'm not familiar with it. So well, I, I read the same thing as you where they were like, well, clearly people in this era would have known without a doubt that they were child molesters. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> I, I there's nothing that would have made me know that. Um, so it's really hard to look at it from only a modern lens and then also not a real understanding on my part entirely of the language of that era to kind of really be able to parse the meaning from it so a lot of that I definitely struggled with where I was like am I supposed to not know what's going on or do I just right. not know what's going on because I'm kind of dumb <laughs> I think it is deliberate yeah. no I think there deliberate, are deliberate but... things he does but what I think what Becca's saying that I, I align with is like there's this thing where you go I know that this is weird and I know that but I don't know if I don't know if that was weird for her to say that because I just don't know what the social mores were or I don't know what like yeah. the custom was, you know, but I know this is this seems pretty strange. But I think in a weird way that helps the story feel kind of alien and feel kind of kind of unknowable. But but there is that question of how how unknowable would it have been to you if, if this was 1898 and you were reading this and there were all these like understood things about, well, that's very forward not to have a hat on or whatever yeah. that like when you said like that could be what he was too free, like literally it could mean he did. He, he walked, he, he wore his uh, work boots into the house or something like that. And the hat thing came up again when um, the governess went to find Flora and Flora was like, you don't have a hat. And she was like, right. you don't have a hat. I'm like, who yeah. gives a shit? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it was supposed to be something sinister sinister with regards to Peter Quint but it's just like we just don't know the yeah, societal the like the, the 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 social mores like forbid us and forbid anyone from communicating these things that children don't talk to the governess the Miss Gross won't tell the governess us uh, uh, like more details about uh, Quint or Jessel uh, the governess hide, keeps stuff to herself until she feels better about it basically no one talks i.e. no one in the story is Jewish so <laughs> <laughs> this could have been solved 
like in a five pages if the people's last name were like Kaplan. I'm just all I'm saying. I can say that I'm Jewish, by the way. <laughs> Another thing that's actually kind of to that point about like the things we can't really ferret out in, in 2020 about this story is Henry James. Like we all talk about this as ambiguous and that that's like part of the power of this story is that we don't know. But Henry James wrote ghost stories. He just wrote ghost stories that broke the mold. So it's highly possible he thought of this as like, oh, yes, it's in amongst my ghost stories. So it's it's an approach towards a ghost story to say we're going to have a protagonist who may be imagining it. But that like in his mind, it's not clear that Henry Jan like different scholars are like completely divided on whether it's like absolutely clear that this is supposed to be a real haunting versus, oh, it's absolutely clear this is not supposed to be a real haunting. And I could come, I mean, I could honestly see both points of view. None of that is absolutely clear from this text, you know, especially reading it today. So let's talk about The Innocents. Um, I want to say we talked a little bit about this. It's a, just a very nice looking movie. Uh, it was a, a good transfer. <laughs> I guess 1961. Cinescope. I mean, it you know, <laughs> movies already looked pretty darn crisp and pretty, you know, like you, there's some pretty modern cinematography already in 1961. But still, I was impressed at how much with how much of this movie is the lead character um, walking around a mansion with like a candelabra and like the lighting of the shadows behind her. It's like, they'll, it's just, it's very artful the way certain things are concealed. And there were a few scenes where I actually was expecting, like it was almost like they had not invented yet that idea of like something just lurching out of the darkness into, into vision. But there were a few scenes where I was just ready for there to be that type of scare. Even though this movie has the, the one thing about it that you can tell it's made in 1961 is that when there's a scare coming, you get, <laughs> you got the sound effects, yeah. It definitely, yeah, it loses the subtlety that the book had of just, like, how stark and creepy it is to look out the window and see someone who's not supposed to be there in the absolute middle of nowhere in the country. But, yeah, when you hear, like, creepy sounds and children's voices singing and, like, hard piano, like, you know this is a spooky moment. Yeah. Where if you just saw him in the silence, that would also be quite scary totally there was um one shot i remember if it was like a down a corridor or like up some stairs where you just see someone move like at the top of the stairs or at the end of the hall and you see a curtain kind of flutter mm -hmm. and yeah if the music key wasn't there that would have been creepier but that was a good there were some good uh like camera movements and editing um yeah at play so it was definitely creepy like i knew all of the i knew when all the ghosts were happening and i still one of them genuinely jolted me just a teeny bit <laughs> which one um uh, it was a peter quinn it was like a close-up when he appears in a window you're talking about when she's hiding it's hide and seek and she like goes like it's really creepy because she's behind the curtain right up against the window looking out the window yeah it was very very close she was very close to the window and, and he comes up to the window i mean but she stands there for a lot longer than i would have that's the thing yeah. that got to me about that yeah scare, i would have pieced so the fuck yeah. out <laughs> even before realizing there was a man's face there if there was just like something i would have freaked out and run away <laughs> yeah i don't wait i don't wait to get murdered <laughs> I think that the scares being more literal, it's like the movie does two things. Like there's, it, it, it goes in one direction. Seeing the scares, seeing the ghosts makes them more real. That's just point blank. Seeing, mm -hmm. you know, and lingering on them and seeing that she's, she does see the picture of Peter Quint though before she sees him. So the fact that 
she right. sees that face. It's not like she sees that face and then sees the picture, which would lend credence to it being totally real. Do you know what I mean? Right. Why would she know that face if not from that picture? But she sees the picture first. But um, I think so anyway. But um, uh, the, the scare that got me was, I, I think it was, um, well, there was one moment where she's in like the classroom and she looks over and the, the ghost is sitting at the desk. That, that, that surprised me just because I don't think that scare is in the book. And so it was a different scene. Um, where uh, Miss Jessel sitting at the desk and she's just a, you get sort of a good look at her and she's just sitting there and she just looks like a sad person and that's kind of creepy. But I really think that across the pond or the lake is still one of the creepiest visuals because it just sta- it's just standing there and it's doing that thing of watching and just just waiting and, and seeming like there's some malevolence there, but more there's, I don't know, it's just that moment lingers for so long. It's just how wrong it feels. Yeah, it's broad daylight. It's so non-threatening too, like, or at least she she's so not threatening. She just looks sad from a distance. You're just like, what? why are you here? What are you doing? Like Peter Quinn always looked, was always laughing and scowling and yeah. looking menacing, but uh, Miss Jessel just looks sad, and so you you just had to wonder like it was something in a turn, especially because they were holding on her for so long at certain times. I was just kind of waiting, even though I knew I was waiting for like the part in a movie where something like face changes and gets real demonic, or like jumps out at you or something. <laughs> right, yeah, right. It was so measured that it didn't even have like the what you might have thought from that era, like a campiness to it. It was just standing still, just standing there, and that that was really scarier. I was also thinking as I was watching it how it would be done with a modern lens, I guess, be, and and that um, you know, those sorts of subtle quiet creepy things aren't I guess as popular and so like how would they how would they adu- like adjust the the creep factor for a modern audience and I just figured it would just be like way more jump scares Miss Jessel's like face is like torn open or something I don't know but I feel like they did that kind of thing so well in the haunting of hill house i was just gonna say i forgot that i knew previously that the second season of it is based is on the turn Bly of manor. it's haunting yeah. of Bly manor I, yeah i was like while i was reading the book i was like oh, i want to look shit up because i just want to know certain things but i don't want it to be spoiled so it wasn't until i finished reading that i was just looking up anything and i was like oh my god i I knew and then forgot that the second season was based on this book and Bly Manor. Like, I'm sure it'll be a loose interpretation, but. Oh, for sure. Because, I mean, Hill House was very loose. Yeah. They did that that ghost or like, yeah, it's so many times the characters in the show don't even see it, but we see it. And just the fact that there's someone there that shouldn't be is the most unsettling goddamn thing in the world. And what's it doing there? Nothing. Yeah, they're just watching. And there's no explanation for almost any of them. I was glad that we were doing this before that show came out because I'm kind of glad that I've got all my opinions about Turn of the Screw well in place before The Haunting <laughs> of Bly Manor comes up. But no, I'm really intrigued because of how loose an adaptation Hill House was. I really think that the like someone with that level of ingenuity of what you were just saying, Becca, integrating ghosts into the scene, integrating moments into the background where you would almost have to, like I remember looking at my son and I would look up like YouTube super edits that would show you like ghosts in case you missed them and stuff. And we caught a lot of them, but there's some that I just missed when a camera moves and you you know, you don't, I love that. It took a few episodes and then finding it online for me to even know that there were any. Like hidden ghosts and then in the background. Going back and rewatching them, and then yeah, seeing the pictures and and rewatching the show was like, fuck. 
oh god how did i not notice this that makes it so much scarier and it's so horrifying because you feel like you're fig- you feel like you're seeing a ghost like you yeah. you're seeing something that's like why is nobody talking about that tall guy with like weird no eyeballs or whatever in the yeah. background <laughs> and there was like a one one ghost that had like a big head there's like in the far background a ghost with like an, a really oversized head or something in hill house and it's like who is that guy <laughs> what's, what's there's no deal? explanation for like any of the ghosts so yeah i think i think uh, what's his name like mike shanahan i think he <laughs> mike <could> flanagan flanagan <laughs> who's mike shanahan <laughs> I just love, shanahan sounds like you're making fun of the name flanagan <laughs> i'm sorry mike <laughs> well okay so mike flanagan actually could you know do a good job with that but i feel like most directors wouldn't go that way i i think the the um the, most horror movies would go for the bigger scares and so they'd amplify something out of thin air like that wasn't from the book at all well he said he thinks this season's scarier i read somewhere where he said he thinks the second season's scarier and that worse things happen handle that. In, to characters <laughs> this year so i obviously they're doing something different if he's saying a lot of bad things are happening because not a lot bad happens like let's say in the in the, on screen, so to speak. I mean, I guess the worst thing is that ending that Douglas yeah. was telling the people in the drawing room was the the scariest ending, which is that we, which we didn't talk about really in the book, which is that Miles dies <laughs> yeah. at the end. That's a pretty dark arc for that story. And how do you feel about the death of Miles in the book versus the the movie? I liked everything about the book better than the movie. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm, me too. I, I, they were, yeah, they were leaning hard on the she's crazy thing. They were leaning hard on the the kids are creepy thing, where in the book it felt a lot more subtle. And it, it like, even in a novella, it, they gave it a lot more time to build up to a place where when it comes to a head, it's, it's really intense. And in the book or in the movie, there just were so many more moments of scares or creepy things and additions they had like here's a dead bird it looks like his neck is broken i don't yeah. know sleep with yeah. it in my pillow I'm like why the fuck why just think things that felt unnecessary because it felt like the source material had enough of that creepy factor in it mm-hmm. that you know maybe you could punch it up a little but they just like leaned hard on the gas about it and I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't like it as much. It, it just felt like there were a lot of unnecessary elements where the ending in the book I thought was amazing. I thought that was such a great scene where she keeps trying to stop Miles from turning towards the window. Because mm-hmm. it, it's so intense, but it's something when you think about it, it seems really innocuous. Where yeah. she's just trying to keep him from turning towards the window because she sees the ghost there. And she's just trying and to shield like him from him. It. And yeah, she's trying to save him. And it's it's such an intense moment i think it ends so like beautifully and succinctly it ends like immediately with his death like there's no reaction there's nothing so you don't know how she handles it you i mean she could have like of mice and men lenny snapped his neck to death by just shaking him we don't know right there's nothing i love that it just ended there like that was such a good note to end on no, and I, in the I totally movie, agree. It's just like he throws a turtle out the window and then he runs outside <laughs> for no reason. The scene keeps happening. I'm like, why did you even leave the house? Why is this turtle in this movie? And it's got the visual language of like the kid looking up and seeing Peter Quint standing there and he's making weird monster hands. It was goofy. You end feeling like there was some kind of ghost, but now it's going to look like she killed the kid. Right. Yeah. Whereas at the end of the book, it's it really is like you stop for a second and go, oh, fuck, she, she was 
she was out of her mind that she killed this kid. Like, she really messed this up. Like, this was all her. It does both so hard, where in the book, I think it does both to a degree that I really didn't start to feel like maybe she was crazy until very towards the end of the book. Yeah. And maybe that's Same. just the way that I particularly read it. it. I didn't feel like it was really telegraphed in there. Um, but even in that last scene in the movie, Miles is yelling at her, you're crazy and trying mm-hmm. to run away from her. Yeah. Where something like that is never really no. made that apparent in the book and, until Flora is like, you know, you're I didn't see the ghost, whatever. I didn't see anything. And that's the kind of moment where you realize like, oh, maybe she really didn't see it. Yeah. That, that scene's kind of the scene where it all comes crashing down on her in the book. Yeah. And it it's, feels like Flora's so evil in that moment that maybe Flora's lying. But then you think like, oh, maybe she's not. It's definitely a lot more subtle. But yeah, Miles is just straight up screaming, you're crazy to her in the movie. And we're seeing a guy hovering outside going, ah, 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 yeah. ah, ah. So just, yeah. Yeah, you're really like, well, which is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, 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 I get that, like, the movie had to, like, I guess, make some decisions because, or the, the director I was reading, um, he didn't like the ambiguity of it because it's based off of a play, which is based off of a book. And then he had Truman Capote, like, punch it up. Right, he wanted to, he wanted to play up the psychological part. He, he did yeah. not want to have it seem like the movie was saying it could be ghosts. But it's weird that the movie does so much to make you think it could be ghosts. That's the thing is like I read that I read and I read this before I actually watched the movie. I was just trying to do some like basic research on it. And so I was like, oh, OK, so they're going strictly with the, uh, you know, the governess is crazy. But then, yeah, why the inclusion of the ghosts at the end? It just totally dismantled that for me. Right. The scariest thing about the whole book is that you just never know. It's never cleared up for you. So to take that away from the movie does, I think, take away from what is so compelling about the book. Um, And actually, there is uh, another horror book that I read this year that did the exact same thing. The whole story start to finish like it goes through the whole plot, but you never know of the like two sides of the story, like who's telling the truth and who's bonkers. Mm -hmm. You never find that out. And it was like one of the most unsettling reads. What was it called? It It was called Cabin at the End of the World. It's great. I loved it. Both this and uh, Henry James um, did something plot wise that I thought would just never happen in Mm -hmm. a horror book. There are certain things I thought there are just certain lines that I just don't think you'd cross. And then both of them did in different ways. Is that Paul Tremblay? Is that the author's name? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good work. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about this before we wrap it up? I had a lot of fun and I definitely I have an idea already of what our next uh, uh, book club, uh, spooky book club idea should be. And I'll tell you. I have, so I want to know everything that you have planned <laughs> and I want to give you a million suggestions. OK, yes. awesome. I'm very excited <laughs> to hear more about it. I think my only final thought for this book was something that I mentioned in the chat that we hadn't really talked about, which in retrospect was the only thing that would have clued me into um, the governess being a little crazy is the f- how quickly she jumped to these conclusions and set these rules for how the the ghosts could be like defeated. Right. Um and that's something that while while I was reading it, I was thinking, like, how does this bitch know what she's talking about? Like, why why would she think this? This is such a weird thing to just accept this information. And then a little bit later reading, I was like, oh, well, I guess I didn't have to accept it. She could have just been talking out of her ass. Right. Um, but so many conversations she had with Mrs. Gross was just like, oh, 
well, I saw uh, Peter Quinn outside, and I know he was looking for Miles, and I know that the way to defeat him is for Miles to never see him, but then to say his name and denounce him. I'm like, how did... How do you know that? You just made that up. Like, you fully made it up. She does it so many times. She makes up the rules for the ghosts out of Yeah, and she's never like, oh, I read it in a book once. She totally Fox Mulders it. You know, she like, she like, (laughs) takes one look at the situation and goes, like, oh, you know what this is? She wants to believe. Yeah. No, I, I honestly, I think that that is one of those things that is like a hint that it's an unreliable narrator, that it's not ex- it's not explicitly stated. And so you get kind of wrapped up in it. But, yeah, it's very much that is a crutch of a lot of these types of stories. It's like when does a person say like in the movie, it's particularly jarring when she's like, oh, it's possession and here's what's happening. You know, like it's even more expository. But in the book, she is constantly jumping to conclusions about what's happening. And I think that the reason you buy those scenes, the reason they flow by the first time you read them is because Miss Gross is so earthy and and believable that yeah. you're like, oh, well, she's hanging in there. So maybe there's something to this, you know, like she you just buy- accepts it. And she she does a similar thing, too, where um, the governess writes a letter for the uncle and then the letter disappears mm-hmm. and they find out that Miles took it. And the governess is talking to Mrs. Gross and telling her that Miles took the letter. And Mrs. Gross is like, oh, that's what he got expelled for, stealing letters. Yeah. Like, why? (laughs) That is a huge leap in, like, okay, he did one thing wrong. That must have been the one thing that got him kicked out of school. I mean, what if that was Henry James's intention? That he would be like, wait, what is all this sexual molestation stuff? Yeah, all he did was steal some letters. Miles Miles stole <laughs> some letters. No, but I think the way in, in both the book and the movie, he says the thing about he he got what he got in trouble for was talking to other kids and and like troubling them, and that is really creepy. Like to me, that sort of like notion, that's another like. Uh, thing that always gets me in horror stories is just the idea of like somebody whispering things to you that that fuck your head up or somebody putting an image in your mind that you can't get away from once That's you start thinking anxiety. about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But the idea that you could spread that and that like Peter Quint would be this force of of just like, like I said, just this sneering jerk who like influenced this kid and now he's kind of taking a little piece of that. And the way they said it in the book was so great, too. It was just so I loved when Miles was so creepy in those moments because it was so effective. He said he never said what he said, but he said, I told the kids that I liked and I suppose they told the kids that they liked. Mm -hmm. So the idea that not only was he like starting this shit in school and affecting these kids, but they were then going and spreading it to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And he was just like this insidious presence. That's just like affecting the whole We got to get this kid out of here. Let's expel him. You know, who knows what the letter, I guess the letter was vague, but again, everyone. And that's another thing that I think that it was like a subtle commentary. Maybe is that like, these little, you know, like th- these things are kind of swept under the rug. And Miles might have been like a budding psychopath. We don't know. Um, luckily, he was frightened to death by his governess. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. That would be my, would be, you know, let's suppose what if Miles wasn't dead at the end? And this is like a Jason Voorhees type, you know, um, <laughs> uh, another turn of the screw. And it's like. You know, whoever's there. I don't know. I, I would say that uh, the governess, wherever she is with her new family, they're like, there's somebody out there. There's a kid <laughs> like, that's tracking you. I want to know what happened to Flora. Yeah. She kind of got whisked away. Does she stay in the city? Is she fucked up forever? She'd have to be. 
Oh, I mean, prior, prior, okay, so prior to this, the events of this book, you have the death of both Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, and then prior to that is the death of their parents. Right. Flora needed therapy years ago. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, Turn of the Screw, folks. Uh, Kelly, where can people find you online? Oh, God. Like, nowhere. Not that you want people to find you online. <laughs> Don't call me. Um, <laughs> hey, guys, what? online, leave Kelly alone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a Twitter, but I don't really use it, but I've been thinking about using it again. I'm uh, Kelly B. Fuller, if you want to follow me for nothing. Um, I'm on Instagram as Kelly B. with seven E's. Um, and yeah, Becca and I have a podcast called CD Reads, which is available on all of the places where you cast your pods. Um, and CD Reads has an Instagram. Word is you've recorded two uh, new episodes that are going to be really good whenever they come out. That's right. Two. <laughs> Hopefully coming to your ears pretty soon. And what about you, Becca? Yeah, you can just find me at CD Reads. It's right. my personal social media is mostly just pictures of cats and whatever <laughs> I'm drinking on a given day. And the keyword is personal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to let you know that uh, Becca and Kelly will be back soon to do a follow-up episode once we've all seen the new Netflix series based on this book or loosely based on it. That should be on Netflix right now for you to watch. The Haunting of Bly Manor, um, the follow-up to Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House. I don't know why I'm doing an ad for them. I should just mention that you can find me on social media, uh, both Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Giannidubya, G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. I think that's it. We should probably get out of here.